how do you budget your life? You know, budgets are uh, just tools that we use to account for the things we know we don't have an infinite supply of. How do you, how do you budget all of life? You know, and when we sit down to budget something, we are, we're looking at um, what, what is going to come in, what is, uh, needs to go out, what's left over. When we sit down to budget, we're, we're, we're talking about what, what is mine or what do I think is mine, what I know I have to give away, what can I hold on to, what can I uh, use to, to, to get what I want. Right? When we sit down to budget, essentially what we're, we're, we're asking is the question, what do I value? What do I value? What is my treasure? Jesus says that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so if you want to have a good picture of what your heart is like and what's going on inside of it, take a hard look at what it is that you value and you, and you treasure. Now, oftentimes when we think about budgets, we think about financial budgets, right? And so we sit down and we look at what's my salary? What's my next paycheck going to be? And then, so from, uh, from my paycheck, what do I need to... Uh, to, to do to pay rent or to pay the mortgage or you know pay the make the car payment or the insurance payment you know there's there's food there's clothing there's there's all these needs that we have and so we, we spend uh, a bunch of money on, on on our needs and then and then what's left over uh, we either you know set aside for for savings you know for those unexpected expenditures that could pop up or or we purchase the things that we what we want right so we have financial treasure. Right? But, but that's not the only thing that we value. We also have um, momentary treasure. We have time. Time is a valuable thing, isn't it? We recognize as human beings we're finite. Life doesn't uh, go on forever, at least not this one. And so the amount of time that we have left needs to be taken into consideration. Now, most of us, uh, when we think about our lifespan, if you're relatively you know, you know, healthy or if, if, you're, if you're young, and that's a relative term, um, but if you're young and if you're healthy, if you feel that way, um, then you sort of take for granted that you have a lot of time left, right? And so there's this macro view of, of time, but there's also sort of the micro view of time where we sort of need to take a look at our calendars, our, our, our month, you know, what's going on today, what's going on this week. And, and so we plan accordingly, we, we schedule, we budget our time. We take into consideration what are the, what are the things that, that I need to, uh, to take care of in the time that I have. So we have, we have financial treasure, we have momentary treasure, uh, we also have relational treasure. None of us is a hermit, right? We live in community with other people. We have family and friends and uh, co-workers and neighbors, and we have all of these relationships that God has given us. Um, we have uh, relational needs, like those, those relationships, they meet our you know, emotional needs and intellectual needs and spiritual needs. So we have all these relational capacities, but we recognize we don't have an endless relational capacity, right? There's seven billion people on this planet. You can't know everyone, right? You can't have a relationship with everybody. And, and even when you think about your own circle, how possible is it to go and have a deep relationship with every one of those people that you know? Like, we have relational capacity. And so we, we sort of budget, we pick and choose those relationships which we're willing to give more to, right? So we have financial treasure, we have momentary treasure, we have relational treasure, treasure. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. How do you budget your life? So we're in Luke 14 this morning. You can begin to turn there with me now. Luke 14, we're starting verse 25. We'll work through this, verse 35. But in Luke 14, what we see is Jesus is going to sort of give us a new budget. He's actually going to talk about the cost of following him. 
The cost of discipleship. And we've talked about this in the past, that to be a disciple means that you not only you know Jesus or seek to know Jesus, but you imitate his life and you follow where he leads. That's what it means to be a disciple. And, and Jesus, he's gonna make it very, very clear in this passage that it is quite costly to follow him. It's extremely costly to follow him. And so look with me, we'll start 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he ha is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Heavenly Father, as we begin this morning, I pray that uh, we would have ears to hear. First of all, that uh, we would be rooted and founded in the cost that you paid first. That the cost that you require of us only comes after the, the, the cost that you gave in order to redeem us. Help us to be able to examine our own hearts, to have the courage to, to look honestly at what it is that we treasure and compare it to you. I pray that you would convict us, but I also pray that you would remind us of the hope that we have in what you've accomplished. I pray that when we leave here today, we uh, have hope. We don't leave here with guilt and shame, but we have hope in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So um, here's what I want to uh, kind of accomplish together in, in our time. Um, three things. The first is this. I, I want when we leave here today to understand what the cost is. That there is an extreme cost of following Jesus, of being his disciples, and to know what that cost is. Secondly, I, I want us to leave here knowing we cannot afford to not pay that cost. We cannot afford to not pay that cost. And then the third thing that we're going to do in our time together this morning is we're going to partake of communion. And that is a way for us to remind ourselves of the cost that was paid for us. And, and that's the foundation of everything, okay? So let's dive in. Um, first, let's look at the extreme cost of following Jesus. Again, verse 25, it says, now great crowds accompanied him, and we'll pause there. Great crowds accompanied him. Um, Luke is sort of transitioning. He's giving us a new picture frame to look at. Um, he's, he's giving us a, a, a new image of Jesus, and he's reminding us of a couple of things. The first thing is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is in the final leg of his mission, and his mission as the Son of God who left his throne. He's taken on flesh. He's come to live this righteous, holy, perfect life, all to go to Jerusalem, to be arrested, to be tried, to be convicted, to be condemned and executed. 
He's going to the cross in order to lay down his life. He's going to pay the cost. One perfect man giving his life for the sin and unrighteousness of billions. That's the cost. He's headed to Jerusalem, and that is what he is intending to pay. And so this is where we see him in Luke chapter 14. The second thing to be reminded of here is of the great crowds that follow Jesus. The great crowds that follow Jesus. Groups of people who would surround him because they wanted to be around him. And, and, and I want to make sure that we understand something here, that just because people surrounded him doesn't mean that they were for him. Great crowds of people gathered around him, but they weren't all for him. And in chapter 13, just one chapter before this, Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And he says that when the kingdom is culminated, in other words, when, when he returns, there's going to be this feast that people are invited into. And the disciples, the, the people who follow Jesus, they get to have a seat at this, this, this great table. And yet entrance into this feast means going through a narrow door. It's a narrow door. And there will be some people who reach that door and they find themselves on the outside of it, knocking on it to get in. And they will say things like, we saw you, we walked with you, we ate with you, we hung out with you, we were part of the crowd that followed you around, we should have a seat at your table. And Jesus' response to them is, I don't know where you're from. I don't know you. The reality is, is that a crowd does not a church make. There's a crowd of people here this morning. And my fear is, is that one day, some of you are going to be standing at a door that you're knocking at, and you're saying, you'll be saying to, to, to God, I was here, I was in this crowd, I came to your church, and I sat, and I listened, and I sang, and because I was here, I deserve to be in there, and you're going to hear him say, I don't know you. You didn't know me, you didn't imitate me, you didn't follow me with your life, you never paid any sort of a cost. You thought that two hours on a Sunday morning is all you needed to pay in order to, to be my disciple, to, to be mine and belong to me. My fear is that there are some of you who are here today and you think that this right here is, the, is all you need to be a disciple. I think part of the reason is this misunderstanding of what it means to be Christian. What does it mean to be a, a Christian? And, 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 and if you were asked, some of you might say things like, well, a Christian is somebody who believes that there's a God. A Christian is somebody who uh, reads a Bible. A Christian is somebody who, who prays. Do you know by that definition, Satan's a Christian? Satan talks to God. Satan knows there's a God. Satan knows this better than anybody. But he's not a follower of Jesus Christ. Some of us think that to be a Christian means you, you vote a certain way. To be a Christian means that you, you have an emotional response to hearing God bless America. To be Christian means you have a certain moral set of ethics that you follow. But the reality is, is all those attitudes and those beliefs that, that we hold in order to receive what we think we should get rather than give what we, we know is due to a holy God. See, there's a cost. There's a cost. So Jesus in this passage, he, he states two of those extreme costs. Before we get into that, just by the way, the word Christian, it wasn't coined by Jesus. Jesus said that people would, would be called by his name. He didn't call his, his followers Christians. The word Christian is seen first in, in Acts 11. 
in the church of Antioch, and it's actually given to, to followers of Jesus Christ by unbelieving people. It was people outside of the church who saw these, these strange people sacrificing and giving at extreme cost to themselves in order to follow this, this guy they call Christ, and they gave him the name Christian. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with the word Christian, so as long as we understand that a Christian is somebody who follows Jesus, who imitates Jesus, who knows Jesus. It's not a political viewpoint. It's not about your church attendance. It's, it's not about, you know, thinking that the, 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 this moral code or whatever. Like, a Christian is someone who pays the cost. And here's the two costs. Verse 26. <clears throat> If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Hate your family. That's what Jesus says. Hate your family. What does Jesus mean by this? I mean, here's the guy who said, um, he he said, uh, love your neighbor. Right? He said the greatest commandment, love God and love one another. And he's now saying, hate your family. Like here's the son of, the guy who, uh, son of God who, who wrote in the Ten Commandments, right? honor your father and mother, is now saying, hate your father and mother. Here's the guy who said, love your enemy, is now saying, hate your spouse and kids. How do we understand that? And the reality is, is that the, the, the biblical word for hate doesn't carry with it the connotation that our English word carries. Our, our English word for hate, it means malicious intent towards somebody. Malicious intent towards somebody. When, when we see the word hate, biblically speaking, most often what it's, it's pointing to is a choice being made. There's a choice that's being made. And one uh, that is chosen is loved, and the one that is not chosen, that's hated. It's, it's referring to a choice. It's not malicious intent. Here's an example of it. Malachi 1 two and three, where it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God did not have a malicious intent towards Esau. This is a a passage that we find in the book of Genesis. God has a plan for how he's going to redeem the world, and that plan begins with a guy named Abraham. He's the patriarch of a family, and it's from his line, from his descendants, that the Savior, Jesus, will come. And so that's passed on to his son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, the eldest, Esau, the younger, Jacob. Esau had a birthright. In other words, as the firstborn, he, he had the rights of a firstborn, but he sold it. One day he was hungry, and his brother offered him a bowl of soup in exchange for his birthright, and because he was hungry, he took it. In other words, he despised his birthright. He rejected it. God rejected him. What what God is saying here is, I had a choice between Jacob and Esau. Jacob I chose to love. Esau I chose to hate. Not malicious intent, but it's a a form of of rejection. I'm going to go this way instead of going that way. It's a choice that God is making. Now Esau, if you know the story, have heard the story, he's actually blessed by God. He becomes a father of a nation called the Edomites. He doesn't receive malicious intent from God, okay? But it's a choice, and here's what Jesus is saying. When he says, hate your father and mother, 
Like some of us, we, we come from an honor-shame kind of culture in that everything revolves around lifting our family's name up, protecting the family name, you know, protecting mom and dad and, 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 and their honor, and, and it would be the most shameful thing in the world to demean that, but we, live, we come from this sort of culture and the family is everything. And here's what Jesus is saying is, I'm your new everything. Mom and dad take a second place to, who, to me. Your relationship with me comes before it comes to, to, to your relationship with your parents. It's not malicious intent towards your parents. When Jesus said, hate your spouse and kids, he's not saying have malicious intent towards your children or your wife. He's saying, choose me over them. Choose me over them. When he says, hate your brother and sister, hate yourself. He's not saying that you have malicious intent towards your siblings or you have malicious intent towards yourself. He's saying put yourself and your siblings second to him. See, this is the cost of discipleship that we need to begin to see. Like, there's a throne in the heart of your life. There's a throne, and there's, there's a place for only one person to sit. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that can sit there. If you're gonna be my disciple, if you're gonna come after me, that, that belongs to me and nobody else. Everybody else comes second. There's a cost to following Jesus. Secondly, Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now to Jesus' first audience, they would have heard the term cross and they would have right, right away known what Jesus was talking about. They saw executions by Romans using this, this cross all over the place. They could drive down, or not drive, walk down the road and see crosses lining the road as people were, were nailed to these wooden beams and hung up to suffocate and slowly die. They understood what the cross was. Jesus saying, pick up your cross and follow me. Now for Jesus, the cross was literal. He literally was crucified. It's not what he's calling us to. It's, it's figurative for you and I. And I would argue that that every single one of us who, who chooses to follow Jesus has a cross and your cross will not look the, the same as somebody else's cross. The cross that, that a, a, a stay-at-home mom will bear, which will be real, is, is different than the cross that the, the entrepreneurial businessman is going to carry. The cross that uh, uh, somebody who works for the government, say, versus somebody who plants churches in another country will have different crosses but what all crosses have in common is pain and shame. Pain and shame. Like, you need to understand, if you're going to follow Jesus, there will be pain. And it might be physical, and it might be emotional, it might be spiritual, but there will be pain. And our world, our culture tells us, avoid pain at all costs. Pain is the enemy. Save yourself from pain. Do whatever you can to live a life that doesn't experience pain. Like, that's the highest value in our culture. Avoid pain. And here Jesus is saying, embrace pain, carry pain, pick up pain, and follow me. But it's also shame. We also live in a culture that says, elevate yourself, glorify yourself, rise above other people. And here Jesus says, no, it's shame. It's, it's going down, it's going low, it's, it, it's surrendering yourself. It's shame. Pain and shame, those are the essential elements of what it means to pick up and bear a cross. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, understand pain and shame. I, maybe some of you are here this morning and um, maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe you're not a Christian. 
Glad you're here. But you don't have a relationship with this Jesus, you got questions. You're exploring, you're trying to figure out this thing, you see some things maybe about your, your friend's life or whatever that, that you think is worth investigating, and so you're here. You're investigating. Really glad you're here. But I want to tell you the truth. If you've been told that following Jesus is going to make you wealthy, it's going to make you happy, it's going to make you healthy, if you have been told that following Jesus is going to make you prosperous, don't believe that. That's not the truth. That's a false gospel. It's a lie. I, I, I don't want to bait and switch you. I want you to know the truth from the very beginning. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. It's going to. But it's worth it. Look with me at verse 28 and through 30 we'll see that uh, it's a cost we can't afford not to make. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, Jesus is, is talking about a fool who's attempting to build something that they can't complete and that in the end, will be completely wiped out anyway, right? Look at the things that you value and treasure. Do you know somebody who values their finances, money? It's their treasure. Do you, do you know somebody who is living their life to accumulate more and more treasure, right? They go after the job that's gonna make the big salary and the promotions that's gonna increase that with the bonuses, their, their real estate vest investing, or the, you know, they're doing all the, the Bitcoin and all this stuff. They're like, they're after the money. And, and you notice when you look at their lives that they've, they've achieved it. Like they got the house, they got the car, they got all this stuff, and yet they keep going. They keep accumulating because it's never enough. It's never enough. And they keep trying to build this monument, this tower out of their treasure, but it never gets completed because there's no end. See, that person will one day die and all that they accumulated and built will come to nothing. It will go to somebody else. It's not theirs anymore. It's building a tower you can't finish and doesn't last anyway. But there is a monument, there is a tower, there is a, a kingdom purpose for which you can live that will last for eternity and will see completion. You look at people and they, 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 they manage their time and all of their life in order to get leisure, right? To, 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 to get pleasure, like they're working for the weekend or they're working for that vacation right, to, to get away, and, and, and they look forward with, with so much joy and anticipation in order to get away, and then what happens on Monday, you have to go back to work, and life stinks again, or they go to that great vacation, have a mind-blowing experience, only to return back to the drudgery of life, and it doesn't matter how many experiences they have, it doesn't matter how many relaxing vacations, how much pleasure they, they, they receive, or how much enjoyment, or how much rest, and all of the stuff, they keep working for it, and working for it, and working for it, but it's never enough, and in the end, what will it amount to? All the pictures and the videos and all the, 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 the memorable things that you bring back from your vacations, what happens to that? Thrown away? It's building a monument that won't last. People who look at their relationships as a means of building a monument to themselves. 
I'm gonna marry the right spouse and I'm gonna have the right kids and I'm gonna have the, the right neighbors and the right neighborhood with the right, right coworkers and I'm gonna have all of these relationships and this, it'll be this beautiful life, this relational life. But what happens when, 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 when struggles or trials come in those relationships and they always do? Will you, in order to maintain this beautiful life, decide, you know what, maybe this isn't the spouse I'm supposed to be with, maybe I'm supposed to be with that person instead? This desire to, to build the perfect relational life and, and you're never able to do it. It will never be completed. It'll never be enough and it will just not last anyway because there's one relationship that lasts for all eternity and that's your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything. You see, following Jesus is a cost you cannot afford to not pay. Look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Verse 31. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet with him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Maybe you're not trying to build a monument. Maybe you're fighting for a cause. What's the war you're fighting? Right? Like, what's the cause of your life? What is, what is the thing that you are striving to achieve in this world? You see, the reality is, is if, if your cause is not that of Jesus, the redemption and the restoration of humanity unto himself, if it's not the cause of making an end to sin and death, if that's not the cause, no matter how noble it is that you are striving for, it doesn't matter. Because there's opposition in this world, tons of opposition. There is an enemy you can't defeat. And in the end of your life, you will discover that that cause you were fighting for, you never won. And you raise the white flag and it's over. There is one cause that has eternal significance. There's only one victory in the end. There will only be one victory. And that's Jesus' victory over sin and death. Is that the cause that you're fighting for? Because if it's not that cause, it's a losing cause. And you will waste your life. But the cost is costly. Now verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Therefore, what he's saying is, think of everything I just said. Think about the cost of what it will mean to follow me. It will cost you your treasure, your, your money, your time, your relationships. It will cost you. All of those things will need to be made secondary when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. It will require you to pick up a cross. There is pain and there is shame in your future. No matter what you try to build, if it's not my kingdom, it's not going to matter. No matter what cause you fight for, if it's not my cause, it's not going to matter. Therefore, based on this, renounce. Renounce. Now, that word renounce, is, it's similar to that word hate we saw earlier. It, it's, in other words, it's, it's saying, I have a choice between two things. I'm going to choose this, and I'm going to reject this. I'm going to lower, demean the value of this. Renouncing. This is all about prioritizing. Prioritizing. How do you budget your life? Most of us, when we look at our treasure, we budget backwards. 
You take your, your financial budget, and most of us sort of do this. Here's my income, here's my salary, and all right, here's uh, rent, mortgage, food, all that. So that comes out first, right? All the expenditures, that's gonna come out first, and then we're gonna get to the end of it, and whatever I have left over, I can either save it or I can spend it on the things that I want, but then what's left over, that's what I'm gonna give to God. That's how we live. What's left over, that belongs to God. But you know what happens? There's nothing left over. We look at our relationships and we say, who are the people I want to hang out with, right? Who are the people that make me feel good about myself? Who are those people that are, that are funny, that make me laugh, that, you know, we could have a good time together? I want to spend time with those people. Yeah, I recognize there are people that I need to serve. There are people that need to know the gospel. There, there are people that need to know what Jesus has done for me. But those people, they suck me dry. Those are costly relationships, and I'm gonna give my time to these other relationships which were really, really fulfilling, and if I have time left over, then I'll spend time with them. But there's never any time left over. We look at our time itself. We budget out our calendars. What do I need to do? And we, we, we fill up our calendars with all sorts of activities. And at the end of it, we say, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. You know, Americans are impoverished. Not financially. We'll spend more on a cup of coffee than, than most people in this world live on in a week. We're not impoverished financially. We're not impoverished relationally. I mean, there are people in this room with thousands of Facebook friends. We have, we have many, many relationships. Most of them are quite shallow and few are quite deep. But relationally speaking, we're not impoverished. When it comes to our time, though, we're impoverished or at least we live like we are. We live like we are. Every human being has 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week and 12 months in a year. Yet, yet here in America, we don't have enough time. You know, if God by some miracle would say, I'm giving to the American people you know, 10 hours more a day and I'm gonna give uh, American people, I'm gonna give them one more day in a week and I'm gonna give them a whole month at the end of the year. I'm gonna give the American people more time. You know what we would do? We would fill up every single moment and at the end of it, we would still say, I don't have any time. I don't have time. Do you know the word? I don't have time is a lie. You see, this whole budgeting thing, it's about prioritizing. It's about saying, I, I have money for this. I don't have money for that. Priority. I, I have relational capacity for this person. I don't have relational capacity for that pers person. It's about priority. And the same thing with time. And you would say, I don't have time to, to, to be with Jesus, to read his word and let him speak to me or to talk to him. I don't have time for that. Lie. You don't make it a priority. I don't have time to serve people. I don't have time. Lie. It's not a priority to you. I don't have time to be about God's mission. I don't have time to tell people about what Jesus has done for me. I don't have time for that. Lie. It's not a priority. That's the truth. We have plenty of time. But we budget backwards. So what can we do with this? Practically speaking, if we are going to choose to sit down and intentionally budget our lives... We're gonna look at those things that we value. We're gonna look at our time or we're gonna look at our, 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 our resources or, or our, uh, our calendars. 
and we're going to look at our relationships, and we're going to budget everything with intentionality. What is, what is a way to guide how we make decisions in that process? I want to give you two, two ways to, to, to look at your budget, which is your life. First, what if we made decisions not based on what is simply acceptable, but what is preferable? And for a Christian, what is preferable is holy. What if we made a decision not on what is acceptable? See, oftentimes we're making decisions with, with this idea of what can I get away with? You know, is this, is this morally wrong? No, I can do it. Right? I, we make decisions based on simply I'm going to avoid evil. What if instead we make decisions on what is holy, what is preferable, what is God-honoring or God-glorifying? So if you, if you look at your money and you say, I'm going to spend this money on something, and, and, and I, I want to spend it on this hobby, you could stop and say, is this, is this bad? Is this acceptable? Is this evil? No? Okay, spend it. Or you could look at it and say, is this holy? Is this God-honoring? Is this going to glorify my God? You look at your relationships. Am I in a relationship with this person that's evil or bad? No. Is it acceptable? Okay, maybe. Is it, is it holy? Are you helping them in their faith? Are, you, are they helping you in your faith? Are you, are you discipling them? Is this, is this a relationship where, where you're telling them about the gospel and you're putting the gospel on display for them? Or is this just a relationship where you talk about the weather or sports or whatever but, but it never achieves any sort of holy purpose. There's nothing beyond what you get out of the relationship. What if you looked at your time and you say, before I sign my kids up for this sporting event before I, before I sign my kids up for, for this, this music lesson or for, for that thing what, what if I, you, you sat down and said, is this acceptable? Sure, it's acceptable but is it holy? Like is it going to lead to anything that glorifies God? A couple weeks ago, I was uh, at a, a discipleship conference and um, was challenged uh, with, by somebody who said, you know, oftentimes that we as parents, our motive in parenting um, comes from this desire that our kids not be left out. So we, we make a lot of decisions for our children for the, the sole purpose of not wanting them to feel left out of their peer group. Don't want my kids to feel left out. And oftentimes we make really poor choices because of that. You know, an 11-year-old kid, and every single one of her classmates has got a smartphone. And because you don't want your kid to feel left out, you're going to give them a smartphone. Think about this. Do you lock the doors of your house at night? Do you put signs up around your house that says, house unlocked, come on in anytime, have your way with anybody in my house? Would you live in a neighborhood that did that? Right? And yet here, little Susie, I know you're 11, but here's the portal to a whole world. And it's a world that's going to inform you all sorts of things about where your identity lies and what your sexuality should be and what's actually pretty or ugly. Or, or, or here's, here's a portal to a whole world to have access to your heart and to have access to your mind, and I just don't want you to feel left out. You could find an acceptable reason to give your, your child a smartphone. Can you find a holy one? Can you find a God-honoring one? 
Do you know that God wants his children to feel left out? In fact, he said that would be the result of following him. That's one of the costs. We'll be left out. Why not teach your kids now? They don't need the world's approval. What if we, we stop making decisions simply on what is acceptable? And we start making decisions on based on what's preferable, what's holy. Now, I want to be careful here. Like, I'm not trying to create some list of do's and don'ts that we can get all pharisaical about. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying you can't have a hobby. I'm not saying you can't take a vacation. I'm not saying you can't sign up your kids for a sporting event or whatever. What I'm saying is, is look, at, look at what God wants first. Like, take into account what does this mean for him? Second thing. Understand that love is costly. When you sit down to budget your life, understand that love is costly. We know this, don't we? You're going to try to have a friendship with somebody that's one-sided and it's all about what you get from that person and it's never what you give to that person. You're going to enter into a marriage where it's all about them fulfilling your dreams and desires, but it's not about you helping them become the person God wants them to be. It's all one-sided. You enter a marriage like that, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to have kids, and you're going to bring kids into this world, bring them home into your family because of of the way that they can fulfill you, right? That they they can fulfill that empty hole in your heart. Do you realize what it will cost you to love a child and that you will never experience that same love back from them? You will give far more than you get. Love is costly. You see, at at bottom of what it means to know Jesus and to imitate Jesus and to follow Jesus, it has to be love. You can't do it because you're guilt. You can't do it because you're shamed. It has to be loved. It has to be rooted and founded in love. You have to love Jesus in order to pay the cost. But he loved you first. See, your love can only be a response to his love. Do you realize that you have a God who knows what it means to pay the penalty? He knows what it means to pay the cost. We have a God who took on flesh. We have a God who went to the cross. We have a God whose father turned his face away from him. He knows broken relationship. He knows rejection. He knows physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. Like you have a God who knows what it means to pay the price and he's paid it infinitely more than you could return. He loves you for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So that you wouldn't perish. You see, that's love and it begins with him. And if you're going to follow him, then it's from that love that you reciprocate and love him back, knowing that that your love will never compare to the love he's given you. That has to be the foundation for it. I want to close our time out this morning by partaking of communion together. And so uh, if you're on the inside aisle, there's a tray at any level. Just go ahead and take that out, pass it down. There are gluten-free elements in there. If you don't need a gluten-free element, please uh, don't take those. But what you're about to hold in your hand are symbols. Simple symbols. Symbols. The first is a little tiny bit of bread. And it symbolizes the body that was given for you. The, the reality that God took on flesh, became a man, 
and he willingly gives his life away. His body given for you. This is a symbol of cost, great cost, but it's a symbol of great love. And you have in that cup a little bit of juice, and that that symbolizes blood shed for you, precious, precious blood that bought for you a relationship with God the Father. These are symbols of love that you hold in your hand. And in a moment, I want you to partake of those. But I want to pause right here, and I want to say maybe for some of you this morning, where you find yourself in this moment is feeling shame, like feeling guilt. You hold these elements in your hand, the symbols of this great and costly love. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking about all the things that you have not given. Maybe in, in your brain, you've got two columns going, and in one column, you're listing all of the, the, the treasures that you've given to follow Jesus. And yet, and there's this other column, and you see all the things that you have withheld from him. And you know which list is longer. And you see these elements in your hand, and here is this very costly love of God given for you. And you're thinking to yourself, like, I can't repay this and I've withheld. I have not paid the cost. And maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're feeling guilt and shame and I want you to understand something. That's not what God is meaning in this passage. This is not about your guilt and your shame. This is about his grace. And it comes in sort of an obscure way. Look at verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here Jesus is, is saying that when, when something is, is worthless, throw it away. When, when, when something has a purpose and it's not living up to its purpose, discard it. It's meaningless. It's nothing. And you might be sitting here this morning and thinking, I am not living up. Like, I, I haven't paid enough. I'm not living up to what, what I've been called to. Am I worthless? Am I, am I going to be cast out? Am I going to be cast aside? Am I worthless like this piece of salt? And what's interesting about this is, is, is there's this picture of a manure pile, and if you know anything about manure, it's, it's a fertilizer. It actually has a purpose. It has a purpose, and it does something good in the ground. And yet, if salt is put into it, it loses its purpose. And so you might be wondering this morning, maybe my life is preventing other people from achieving their purpose. Maybe I'm hindering my kids' discipleship. Maybe I'm, I'm standing in the way of them truly embracing and following Jesus. And you're, you're, you're feeling this guilt and this shame this morning. Where's the hope here? The hope is found in chemistry. Not that kind of chemistry. Sodium chloride can't lose its saltiness. That's the point Jesus is making. Sodium chloride is actually a, a foundational element. You, you can dissolve it and you can burn it. It doesn't break down. When Jesus says here, salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, what do you say? It doesn't lose its taste. See, for, for salt to lose its taste would mean it would have to become something completely different than it is. I want you to understand something this morning. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been made one 
not by your choice, but by his. He's called you. He's grabbed hold of you. You belong to him. And you can no more lose Jesus than a salt can lose its flavor. Do you see that? He has you. You are secure in that. Your identity can't be changed. He's given you the identity. That's the hope. And yeah, you and I don't measure up, and we never will. We don't pay enough. We haven't sacrificed enough, and we never will. But that is the hope and the grace of God and what he has given for us. He has paid it all. He makes up for our deficiency. So if you're sitting here this morning and, and you, you, you feel like guilt or shame, don't. Don't. Feel hope. Feel love. Acknowledge that there's a God who has you and is not going to let you go no matter how miserly, selfish you may be or I may be. I want you to leave here this morning knowing the hope that you have because of what he's done for you. You see, what changes you, it won't be guilt and shame. It'll be love. When you know the depths of his love for you, you will have no problem paying the cost he demands of you. I'm gonna pray. And in the silence that follows, do some business with God. Use that time. Be reminded of the hope that you have. And then when you're ready, partake of those elements. And then in a moment, we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, how great your love is for us. How immeasurable, how vast, how deep. Help us to see it. Help us to experience it. You have demanded a high cost for us, but you've already actually paid it. Help us to respond. Help us to live lives that point to you. Help us to not fear pain or shame or difficulty. But remind us of the hope that we have in you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, move in us. Guide us, teach us, and help us to imitate this Jesus more and more and conform to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.